0: This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Paul Zak. He's professor of economics and the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies at Claremont Graduate University. I spoke with him on March 25, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station KUCI in Irvine, California. This interview is included in our program The Science of Trust, Economics and Virtue. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org.
1: Hello. Hello. Do you hear me?
0: Hi, we've been Hi, hearing, you, been for hearing you for a
1: while. Okay. Um, well, wow. and I, this is the first <laughs> first I heard you. Uh, and how Okay, I'm going to uh, do you want me to put uh, Rick, right? Paul, I'm so sorry. Paul, do you want me to put Paul on here and and you guys can That'd be great. That'd be great. Um, work it out. Okay. I'm hearing, I'm a,
0: hearing a big echo. echo.
1: Well, okay. Let me let me do something. You can use, use these headphones. Okay. Go ahead and sit down over there. All right. I'll unplug and go ahead
2: and sit down. Talk right into the microphone. And...
0: Hi, it's Paul Zak. Hi, it's Krista right. Tippett. Hello. Hello. Um, there's a an echo that's going to drive me crazy. So I need them to. Um, it, it may be a volume. Oh, I think oh, it just went away.
2: Let's see. Did it just go away? Well. Uh, I do hear uh, a bit of an echo too.
0: Heard, yeah. No, it's still there. still there.
1: It. It sounds like it's coming through a set of headphones.
0: Um, is there another set of headphones?
1: A- actually, yeah. I, I put in. He's wearing. I we yeah. So there's two set of headphones here. Is that what you think might be causing it? Yes. I'm I'm just the one set of headphones okay
2: okay so how's the echo now okay um i hear it too
0: i still hear it you still hear it um it could be the volume on your headphones and actually okay. i think mitch maybe we should try to turn it sounds pretty loud at this end too Is that helping um,
2: okay okay better
0: let me see um i'm not hearing the echo anymore are okay. you still hearing One, two, it no, three. Sh- yeah no we are hearing it it's pretty
1: loud are there any other speakers in the room still hearing it uh-huh how
2: about now Yeah, I was still hearing Um, it. I'm going to swap that one for this one.
1: The headphones? Um, Let me see. Or
2: volume, they said.
1: Or volume. Are we up too high?
2: We're we're knocking down the volume now.
0: You know, it um, sounds like... I I don't think it's a volume issue. It's pretty loud. Okay. Could it be a door open or...
2: There is a door open. Should we try to kill on that and we'll...
0: Would that do it, Mitch? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Let's see. Is it still, okay. there?
2: still there? Trying again, um, trying it's again. still there. Um, wow, it's still there.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me move back from the mic a little bit. I think we're better. No? Still got it. Um.
1: So let me just clarify. Um, on that end, there's just the one set of headphones plugged in?
2: That's correct. One set of headphones, and volume is now at a moderate level. Is that better? No, mm. uh, I think it's a bit better. It, uh, they just did something here.
0: Okay, um... I'm still hearing it.
1: I'm just wondering if there's—is um, it like the AKG headphones? Uh, Mike, can you verify the headphones there?
2: Okay, they're unplugging me and going to try something else.
0: Okay, sorry. And you got there early. I hope that was yes. not our fault.
2: No, 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 no. In okay. fact, I wandered and got lost. So I'm—it's right. okay. I'm happy that you're delayed. Is this better? We we switch um, jacks.
0: I still hear it a little bit, but. What is it? Yeah, I. It's, it's faint.
2: It's faint. Uh-huh. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. You have to be able to hear it. Can you hear? Okay.
2: I can hear fine. Okay. So the engineer share with me, and all right. I don't hear much. Okay.
0: Now. I think we're okay. I think okay. we've done it. Yeah. It. It all.
2: Okay. You're, technology
0: you're pretty... is wonderful, but something always goes wrong.
2: <laughs> it's wonderful only when it works. does it work no, a lot faint. of
1: the time.
0: I got a little more volume. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay.
1: That
2: better? D- Are you okay on working yeah. one more test?
0: I think we sound I, fine at my end.
2: Okay, I still a little bit of an echo as well, but um, mm-hmm.
0: this volume's mm-hmm. way down, so I don't, I don't think that's yeah, what it is better. at this end. Um, yeah. so did, tell me, tell little me little what on. you had for breakfast, and let's just hear you talk a little uh, bit.
2: Okay, I had a wonderfully healthy breakfast of uh, cereal, raisins milk and way too much coffee how's that (laughs) we still
0: (laughs) can you are you hearing the echo when you speak
2: i'm not hearing much no it's almost clean now i think
0: okay i if it's if it's even a little bit it may may bother
1: you
2: um he's doing some adjustments here
1: just say i was lowering the isdn
2: he's lowering the isdn and that seems to help to me that's
0: helping you okay does that sound right Mitch? Okay. All right. Do you have any questions as we begin to speak?
2: I don't think so. I listened to a couple of other programs okay. and um Shiraz, the producer was mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. So, unless you want to prep me on anything?
0: No, I I I, uh, I spent the le- you know spent a good deal of time in the last couple of days reading you and uh you know, some very it raised a lot of really interesting questions. So I just want to delve into those. I I wonder, did you see the project we're doing um, called Repossessing Virtue, which is our response to the economic crisis? I did. Okay, so we may. I want to maybe talk to you a little bit about that. But as we as we move on, Mitch, could you turn would... my headphones up just a little bit? The volume's really low. Okay, that's better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: and I should tell you, my lab sort of specializes in the biology of virtue so right i know i could, I could yeah. do an hour on yeah. virtues <laughs> okay
0: well that's we're going to talk about you that take me wherever day. you want to go. all right i will um i do want to start and this is where i start all, all my conversations with just hearing a little bit about um is there was there a religious background to your life
2: uh there was um an extraordinarily interesting religious background at some level my mother was a nun uh-huh. So process that. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> dropped out of the convent after, I think, six years because she thought it wasn't strict enough.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: So I was a uh, Latin Mass altar boy for many years. <laughs> um, currently don't attend uh, Catholic Church, uh, although I'm not against it. I mm-hmm. often go with my Presbyterian wife to her church. Um, but uh, I kind of have it shoved down my throat.
0: Okay. And then, did did you what did you study? Did you study neuroscience?
1: And
2: I studied biology, mathematics, and economics. Okay. So I kind of combined all the fields, hoping I'd have some giant set of tools to figure out why people are so wacky and why people are so wonderful.
0: Okay, so that was your broad interest as you got into this, as it you was. started your work working life. Uh-huh.
2: Uh, I guess so. I started the working life uh, asking why countries are poor. If we have so many rich countries, why why can't Mexico or Guatemala just sort of copy the Western model? And uh, that led me into looking at things like uh, trust and uh, family size choices and investments in children. And that led me into this uh, research in neuroeconomics and uh, the biology of virtues.
0: And was it specifically um, this focus on, I mean, what I've understood is you did some important work on correlating trust or a lack thereof and poverty or wealth in different countries. Is that right? And I mean, tell me about that connection and how you how you came to see it and what it meant.
2: Right. So I've been working on um, models of conflict to understand why countries don't grow. So if there's a lot of conflict politically, socially, um, even economically, then you see a lot of disruptions and you see a lack of uh, progress made in terms of living standards. And so I had this idea at a conference that if I am such an expert in conflict, I should be an expert in the absence of conflict. Hmm. And as I started thinking about that, I thought, you know, what captures the essence of conflict is really trust. Hmm. When trust is high, and we can shake a hand, shake hands, and uh, do a deal, then my sense was that you know economies would grow faster. So, delving into that for a couple of years, I discovered that trust was sort of the big gun economists have been looking for. It's really the most powerful lever we found to date to understand why countries are rich or poor, partially because trust captures... When trust is high, everything in the in the society works well. The government works well. The social sector works well. The economic sector works well. So it's sort of one variable that captures, hey, things are going good or things are going badly.
0: Um, and, and when you say trust, I mean, are you talking about trust in um, the structures of an economy, trust in markets, trust in other business people? I mean, is, is this cool. trust as manifest on many levels?
2: Great question. So it's really trust in other people. Okay. So it turns out that trust in other people correlates very strongly with trust in government, um, how well all these other sectors of the economy work. And so once this work became very well-known, the World Bank flies me out, you know, how do we implement this stuff in these less developed countries? The question I always got was, well, how do two people decide to trust each other? Hmm. So the data we were using were, How much do you trust other people in your country in general? But the next question was, why would I trust a complete stranger, and particularly in a tangible way? Why would I give money to a complete stranger, particularly if I'm never going to see him or her again? And that led to this this investigation of the brain mechanisms behind trust and our discovery of oxytocin as this trust molecule.
0: So that is the work um, you're doing now, and it comes under this uh, category of uh, neuroeconomics, which I think is a word that many people won't won't have heard. So I wonder if you could just tell me, I mean, is that a new field that you've helped create? That's kind of a sense I have.
2: That's correct. So I started doing this in 2001 and 2002, and there really wasn't a name for this, although this name was kind of floating around in the air and neuroeconomics really looks at the brain processes that are active when we make decisions. Now you notice I didn't say economic decisions. I just said decisions. Yeah. So in some sense, all decisions are economic. That is, they involve trade-offs. Should I marry girl A or girl B? Should I have three children or two children? So any decision-making process involves evaluating alternatives, and that's really the essence of economics. So because people couldn't report to us in our laboratory experiments... Why they were trusting strangers with their own money, which they do quite readily in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. We needed some other way to figure out what they were doing, and so we had this idea to measure brain activity while they were making decisions. And subsequently, this field has now kind of taken off and has a life of its own. But at the time, it was, you know, sort of the world's stupidest idea.
0: <laughs> well, say some more about that.
2: Okay, because economists assume that people, when money's on the line, you know, people are very thoughtful. They will uh, take some time. They're informed. There's this sort of big cognitive process that leads to efficient decision-making. But, in fact, we know from our own lives that sometimes people make mistakes. Even people with big brains like us, sometimes we make mistakes. And why is that? Further, I really we're taking a shot at traditional economics that assumed that people were... Thoughtful and slow and deliberative. And we don't see that in the world. We see people making uh, gut decisions, quick decisions, sometimes wrong decisions, maybe for the right reasons, but decisions that go horribly wrong. And maybe some of those lead to things like financial crises. Certain booms and busts mm-hmm. are not, in some sense, rational. They're overreactions or underreactions to certain environments. So I think the environment right now, we're seeing a gross underreaction to what looks to me like lots of bargains in real estate and uh and various asset classes um because there's this overwhelming sort of sense of pessimism and uh and 3 years ago there was just way too much euphoria and uh you know when my gardener owns three uh, rental properties um you know the, that doesn't look so good you know
0: but you know but backing up a little bit um i i do think even though you've been doing this work um for several years, in and you and other people in other disciplines. I mean, because it looks like neuroeconomics draws on economic theory, and as well as neuroscience and psychology, endocrinology. Um, but I think you're right, and I think that one of the uh, kind of there was this shock when the economic crisis hit last fall, because it did seem like we had all been functioning to some degree against the evidence on on an idea that because we were dealing with economics which had to do with numbers, somehow it was rational and logical right I mean we had su- many of us had suspended our judgment in different ways. Um, and what was fascinating to me is that suddenly what we were talking about was faith in the markets being crushed and trust in the markets being crushed. So suddenly right. we were seeing that what what had, what was exposed was this, was, you know, you could almost just say the human condition. I mean, how much emotion and irrationality is always in there.
2: But again, I, I agree with you completely. You know, markets are human creations and they reflect our own human nature. And in the kind of decentralized economies we live in, it is based on trust and faith and belief.
1: Hmm.
2: And that's a good thing. I think it recognizes human dignity. It recognizes that most human beings in most situations are moral creatures and you can trust people to reciprocate most of the time. So, our studies find 98% of people are reciprocators. And the 2% have very unusual brains, and we could talk a little about that. Yeah. But um, 98% of the time, people will do what you expect them to do. What that means is that we don't need a policeman and a lawyer in every transaction. And that's great because now, just like this high, these high trust countries I spoke of before, We can affect transactions quite readily and easily, so the cost of engaging in transactions is lower, more transactions occur, and we have more wealth creation, greater prosperity. There are downsides to that, and we can certainly talk about those. For example, people will find loopholes and try to exploit them, which Mm -hmm. certainly uh, people in the finance industry did. But by and large, I think uh, having these decentralized economies that are based on most people most of the time being moral, being reciprocal, means that we can do lots of things we couldn't do otherwise. And um most of our societies are built around that, civilization is built around that. Certainly democracy is built around that.
0: So in um September of last year, you uh is it, I believe that's when the book Moral Markets came out. Is that right? Or I also have I haven't, think
2: it was uh January. Was it
0: January? Yes, the book came out earlier. I also have an essay that you wrote in September of two thousand eight, which echoed a lot of the themes. Um And I, you know, I want to read that to you and and talk because what, and it it also echoes what you just said to me. Um, You wrote um, studies across several scientific disciplines are accumulating evidence that modern free economies can only function if most people behave most of the time. If most people behave most of the time, behave morally. Surprisingly, this research also shows that the freedom to exchange in markets may itself lead to a society where individuals have stronger moral values put more succinctly, markets depend on and promote virtue. Now, that is not the story we would tell ourselves about the the reality of the economy as it started to reveal itself to us in the latter months of 2008. Do you feel that what you wrote then, uh, you know, what, what you have been um, discerning in your research uh, was wrong or was it prescient? <laughs> um, talk to me about that. I'm,
2: I'm going to stick by that. I, I think um, you know the news is um, overwhelmingly about stories in which we have failures. Mm-hmm. I think in that same essay, I said you know even the most ardent capitalists get a small thrill when they see uh, the, the kind of evil-doing CEOs do the perp walk. You know the Jeffrey Skilling's and Kenneth Lay's, right. and w- we like to see people who have cheated punished. Um, You know, most of our great novels and movies are about that theme to one extent or another. So um, by allowing individuals the freedom to engage in transactions um, without coercion, it also means you're allowing some people to cheat. And it's that kind of hardcore 2% who have a brain dysfunction in this brain chemical that we found instantiates empathy, instantiates care for someone else's welfare. So I'm not saying, by the way, that Jeffrey Skilling doesn't have this uh, brain mechanism. He may or may not. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't studied him. But uh, we have to allow for some cheating. Uh, think of this as a, as a legal analogy, um, a la sort of minority report. If I looked into your head and I figured that in 10 years from now you're engaged in some crime and therefore I arrest you now, well, gee, who knows? But if I allow you to go through your life... And if you do engage in misbehavior then I'll try to you know after the fact capture you, punish you, encourage you not to do that again um me being as a society, us as a society, will try mm-hmm. to do that, but I don't want to want to beforehand say, no, you can't engage in all the things in life. you can't go one mile an hour over the speed limit, even if you have a sick child in the back seat and you're rushing him or her to the hospital, it's not allowed, so I think by having this freedom to innovate, do things a little differently perhaps even to bend the rules, allows for greater freedom, greater prosperity, greater innovation. It also allows for cheating, and we need an appropriate regulatory framework that captures, discourages, and punishes cheaters. And I think what we found in this recession is that we didn't have a sufficiently strong framework within the financial services industry.
0: And I I think your point is well taken that you make, that we... um that we, we sometimes are dealing with caricatures, that we kind of thrive on worst case examples. And we certainly have a lot of that before us right now. And you, tol- you tell a story um, about Cliff Baxter, a f- one of the founding fig- figures of Enron, who I'd never heard of and certainly did not become such a household name as Jeffrey Skilling or, or Kenneth Lay, right? I mean, there are stories like that, um, I think you're saying, right, that are not being told.
2: Exactly right. Where, if we can follow up on that, where Baxter, who was a former president of Enron, um, resigned in protest, left a paper trail of the abuses to uh, Kenneth Lay, which were ignored. Um, resigned, and when he resigned, he took twenty-two million dollars in stock options with him, and within a year after that, uh, committed suicide. And in his suicide note, said he could not take the pain anymore of this thing that he had helped start. Mm-hmm. So the question is, why he felt that so strongly. And I should say he was also on a number of antidepressants. Um, well, he felt that so strongly, but the other people who worked at, at Enron from the top you know, down to the bottom did not feel so strongly about that. And, you know, I think that's just an extreme example of we are the sum of all of our interactions, human interactions. And when those human interactions become increasingly negative... Um, people really take that to heart to a greater or lesser extent. Hmm. So, again, I think Enron was a very innovative idea when it started out. Um, You know, use these economies of scale to um, marshal resources in a very effective way and allocate them different ways. They certainly got out of whack when they started essentially manipulating markets. Mm -hmm. So good idea gone wrong, but, you know, initially a good idea. That's why it became a large company. It wasn't a stupid idea, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't an evil idea, I think. It, it, It got... Uh, it, it got taken over by greed. It got taken over by a lot of bad ideas and illegal and immoral behavior.
0: I I think I feel like we kind of skipped over this, but I wonder if you would say a little bit about what you learned specifically about um, bi- oxytocin, sort of biochemical processes of empathy and trust. You've called this the moral molecule. And it seems to me that you see... This is one of the dynamics that's at play when you look at um, these human stories that, that do uh, determine our our economic landscape. Talk to me about right. what you so, learned. So, yeah.
2: so let's bring some science to bear on this. So uh-huh. I just made a bunch of uh, perhaps interesting or outlandish claims about people having some sort of our moral sense. But in the last five years, we've begun to find the chemical basis for this. And we discovered this molecule called oxytocin, that lives in the human brain, and in particularly human beings, it's particularly potent at making us care about the outcomes of others. So we initially found that when someone trusts you with their money intentionally, I'm going to give you $20 and let you control it, that the more money someone entrusts to you, the more your brain releases this molecule, and the more you tend to reciprocate. When the person says, would you like to give some of that back to me? Even though you don't have to, you do. We've now found this instantiates generosity, generosity, if I have more, you have less, and vice versa, when we actually give people, human beings, synthetic oxytocin, we can induce them to be more generous towards strangers, more generous towards charities. Mm -hmm. And we very recently found that when we watch and when we show uh, experimental subjects, an emotionally compelling video, a video of a man uh, whose 4-year-old son has terminal brain cancer, that there's a big spike in the release of oxytocin, and people are subsequently much more generous towards a stranger they're more generous towards charity. So somehow this our brain has allowed us to um, live in large groups of people where we have something in our heads that says, this person's safe, this person not. This person want to be around, this person I don't want to be around. So it's kind of a trust detector.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And in a very real sense, it connects us to other people. So the great philosophical traditions have thought of empathy as a foundation for moral behaviors. So the reason I don't do things that are immoral is because I'm a social creature. I live around the other humans, and I'll get a lot of negative feedback, uh, as we all have when we do things that are inappropriate. And if I want to be around the other humans, I'm going to try to gauge my behavior so that I'm not um, you know, constantly irritating people, uh, constantly being ostracized or punished by people. So oxytocin is one of those signals that says, hmm, I'm getting what you're doing. It allows me to sort of emotionally mirror what other people are doing. And classically, oxytocin is associated with um, childbirth, reproduction, oh, right? And, I was going to say mammals. with
0: maternal love and bonding. Right?
2: Yeah, Which and is... and in mammals, care for offspring. And what mm-hmm. we've shown Fiercely. in the last five years is that it it makes us care about complete strangers. I should say, in these experiments, we run them in a laboratory. You're in a partitioned computer station, and all these interactions happen through a computer. So you're not even getting the smiles, the the um, open expression, the you know, the happiness. Uh, So even in that setting, when I've removed most of the personal content, the brains of these individuals are still releasing oxytocin Mm. at a very high rate. Uh, So I think what this shows is that human beings are almost unique among animals in which we can't help but care about other people's welfare and we care about what they think of us as well. And that kind of keeps us on the straight and narrow. Not all the time, we're adaptable. And this system shuts down under high levels of stress. Right. And so I've written in the Moral Markets book about the kind of environment that was created at Enron that put people under enormous amounts of stress, survival stress to keep their job. And so if you're under such enormous stress, then the system shuts down and you get to be in this I'd need to get to the next two hours mode as opposed to I'm going to take care of people around me and this is a win-win situation.
1: Well,
0: and I have to say, as I was um, reading about you and your work, um, as this economic reality continues to unfold around us, I thought that was one of the most interesting um, learnings. And as I, you know, because, and I know nobody can measure this and you can't measure this, but I think we, many of us, do have a sense that that things really got out of control the last few years, and I and I do think that we can look around and and see bad and immoral decisions be, having been made um, to a greater or lesser degree at all kinds of level levels of our economy. And I I was wondering, you know, to myself, and I just like to know what you think about this. It seems to me that we have had this acceleration of stress as a feature of everyday life, I mean, this 24-7 culture that is a relatively new thing, it, it got me wondering if, um, if the accelerating stress that's kind of been built into our everyday lives might have contributed um, in a very real way to some of the bad and really immoral decision-making in our economy in the last few years.
2: I tend to agree with you. So let me give you kind of two answers. I think it's a wonderful question, by the way. Um, economists uh, talk of the cleansing effect of recessions. So recessions are necessary because they kind of call out the companies that are not providing the best customer service. They're not making a profit. They're not providing some product or service that people need. And when those businesses go out of business, then those resources are redeployed to more important uses, Uh, The machines are reused. The people get different jobs. And so this keeps the economy kind of efficient. We don't want to kind of limp along and have high levels of inefficiency just because we love the name General Motors or love the name of some company if they can't kind of keep up with the herd. So competition drives that, and that's an important part of maintaining efficiency. But I think the same thing can happen in individual lives. I think uh, as we get towards the end of every uh, boom period, today or, you know, two years ago, uh, the end of the uh, 1990s and dot-com bubble, um, the end of the 80s, and this kind of me, greed generation, I think we do get out of whack because human beings are adaptable and we are watching what other humans are doing. We also become adaptable to this sort of yuppie, more stuff for me lifestyle. So I think from a spiritual perspective that recessions are also cleansing. They get us back to the kind of core issues that are so important to human happiness, which is not more stuff in a bigger car, it's relationships, it's transcendence, it's awe for the world that we live in, um, it's family. I mean, all those things that are really core issues, I think, come to the front when we're under uh, a change in regime, when something different happens and we Mm -hmm. have to reassess our lives. So I think it's very important that we don't shy away from recessions and we don't try to outlaw them and we don't kind of bellyache about them. I think we should say hey, there were excesses, this is how the excesses are corrected. And the excesses were both kind of in the macro level and even perhaps in my own life. Uh, maybe I got a little overexcited about uh, the extra bonuses I was getting and the the bigger car, and now I want to sit down and reevaluate what's really important to me. So I think there are, there are great analogies between the micro and the macro, and we should embrace that. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the stress issues are strong, and so I think this is one reason why your program and, and then, programs like it okay. are so important. So one of the one of the uh, pieces of advice I'd like to give is turn off your TV. Don't listen to the pessimism- pessimistic news every second of the day. Um, get right, back because to, there's
0: another kind of stress that's created with the things that are going wrong now, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. and so this is the time to reach out to your neighbors, um, as um, you know. I certainly have with people around me who've lost their jobs, and many others have as well. You know, do the things that are important. Do the things that are human and humane, and uh, get back to a sense of where we want to be as individuals and as a as a human species.
0: Let me just ask you this again, from the perspective of your scientific research: if um, if stress, if a stressful culture um, inside our workplaces and outside it, um, had this power to diminish our our instinct, our, our, and you know, I think what you want to say, our inclination to care morally about the consequences of our actions more. Um, does stress also, in a moment like this, in a moment where the economy is really in crisis, um, and there are a lot of bad effects of that, does, does this kind of stress also make it harder for us again to reach out to others?
2: I think there's two ways to answer that. Uh, the, the, the first is that um, appropriate levels of stress are very good for human beings. Uh, so there's sort of this this misnomer that stress is bad. Um, too much stress is bad, but also too little stress is bad. Mm-hmm. So um, there's sort of this inverted U-curve, if you can see that in your head. There's sort of this sweet spot for stress that focuses your attention. So I think um, when we're in that sweet spot, when we're focused, our memory is better and we're thinking clearly and we've got to figure out what to do next, um, that's actually very good for human beings and, and actually all other animals as well. So um I think this is a time when we can use that notion of appropriate stress, mm, good okay. stress, and use that also to shed some of the inappropriate stress. Turn off the email, turn off the T V, um, you know, realize that uh, you know, we have good times and we have bad times, and what sustains you through that are beliefs our relationships and i think you know this is the time that we can take advantage of that um it's it's a great it's a great time of renewal um mm-hmm. so you know this is this is the autumn and uh the spring will follow
0: okay let me tell you something else I, I wondered about as i was reading about your research um you 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 state some some um true and obvious things that i think feel less obvious in our time that You know that merchants and uh, and uh, market exchanges, in essence, are supposed to be, uh, all initially were and often are about increasing the well-being of neighbors and complete strangers. Um, That economies are driven by human beings. you you know, markets are human inventions. These are your words. And market exchange is a social act. But just a minute ago, you mentioned economies of scale in connection with Enron and. and I also think that one of the things people have been rediscovering in recent years and are doing with a new kind of passion now is, I don't know, shopping at the farmer's market rather than the large uh, supermarket, right? And I wonder to, if you've thought about our, um, how economies of scale also might affect this connection that you've been able to draw between morality and moral inclinations and economies? I mean, it seems to me there is a difference in terms of us experiencing economic activity as a moral act. If we're doing something, if we're purchasing something that went through Archer's Daniels, Archer Daniels Midland or we're shopping at our local farmer's market.
2: That's a wonderful question. So um, turns out there's a ton of research on this, uh, particularly by economic historians. And, you know, Exchange originally was personal. You, you right. knew the farmer. You exchanged uh, wheat for cattle or whatever it was. And you know, as we've developed um, greater methods to increase productivity, we've seen in many industries this sort of centralization economies of scale, in which now you're exchanging with not the farmer but the cashier at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only face you see, and it does depersonalize exchange. So again as you're saying i think very appropriately there's this trade off between lower prices walmart and maybe moderate quality and interacting with the person who actually is creating the product who is growing the food and having this kind of a relationship with him or her and then paying more but but potentially getting higher quality so um, i think large companies do face this risk it's um, You would never walk into uh, uh, your—I live in a semi-rural area, and we have orange trees everywhere. Hmm. And when we walk by them, when I walk by with my kids, my kids say, let's grab an orange. I said, no, you can't grab those oranges because they're on the other side of the fence. Someone owns those. They have to sell those to make a living. Right. Um, But, you know, grabbing an orange from a giant grocery store chain doesn't feel as bad as that, right, Hmm. because I don't know who that neighbor is. Um, I think to counteract that, large businesses and Walmarts, one of them, work very hard on customer service. They have greeters. Uh, they have commercials right. that try to put a human face so on So they're this.
0: counteracting this, in fact, intentionally?
2: I think they're doing it intentionally, and mm-hmm. that's how we see these businesses. We see them as the human face. I don't think of Walmart as the giant retailer. I see this as the greeter, the, the nice old guy in front of the store says hi to me. And uh, Now, granted, that greeter also probably reduces shoplifting and other things, but there's this sense that we really need a human face, and whatever human face it is, in fact, the grocery store I shop at, I know the cashier's name because it's not a very big town I live in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of nice. I feel like I'm kind of buying from them as opposed to buying from this giant chain.
0: right? And so we
2: can't help but personalize exchange. I think that's the point. And I think that's important because, it, again, it draws on this moral sense. It draws on our sense of empathy and releases oxytocin. And therefore, I'm not incentivized to uh, shoplift as much. Again, if I'm under stress, I will do that. If I'm starving... In fact, there's no moral violation. For example, in Hurricane Katrina, to go out and take food if you are uh, under extreme stress, you can, you know, there's no legal violation. Um, you can open up a grocery store and to help yourself to food. You can't take TVs, right? That was that's illegal. Right. Um, so, because it's it's a it's extreme situation, so I, I don't want to say that people who are shoplifting because they're very poor are immoral. They're in a different place in life in which, you know, some of those strictures that we would put on ourselves and the normal brain processes that would tell us about appropriate behavior just are not kicking in.
0: But, you know, I was also thinking about this in connection with this phenomenon we had in this economy that's now failed this housing market. Um, all these mortgage lenders, some of them working with very small firms um and you you know, in your studies you showed that ninety eight percent of those who were shown trust returned money to the person who trusted them. And it really does seem like in this in this period of this housing bubble, the rate of people enacting transitions which were reckless um at you know risky at best and reckless with other people at, at worst, really giving people money that they could calculate if they cared to. Um might get these people in trouble down the road. Uh, it seems that that was probably more than 98%, though, of course, I don't can't prove that empirically either. But I also wondered in that connection if, if what you have are these financial networks, these structures that had become, that, that people were so many steps removed, in fact, from the consequences of those actions, um, that that also kind of depersonalized this human dimension of the market that makes trust more possible.
2: I agree completely with you. Uh, it, you know, when, he, when you took your mortgage out from your local banker who you saw, you know, every Friday when you deposited your paycheck, yeah. it's a much different story. And you could tell him or her, uh-huh. you know, gee, I lost my job and I'm able to make payment this month. And uh, I think you're right. Once we so um, decentralize all kinds of transactions, break them into little pieces. Which by the way, exactly which is what happened at Enron, you break up decisions into little pieces and you stop having this connection to the other human across the desk and it becomes just about churning, about, you know, turning over more volume. Um having said that, I think you know, this housing market bubble did identify a regulatory failure that this, particularly in the swaps market, mm-hmm. you know, this market was gigantic and uh, you know, only grew up in the last ten years and was more or less unregulated. And that was a problem. So again, the recessions are valuable because, you know, these bubbles can't go on forever. And then you say, "Oh, this isn't appropriate. This is not what we wanted. This is not what these instruments were designed to do. And therefore, as a society, we need to choose to put some structure on this. So I think a simple example would be, um, because I live in a, in a semi-rural area, we have a lot of farmers who sell um, fruit by the side of the road. So we have these stands. They're not manned, there's no one's there, and there's a box and there's a bag of oranges. <laughs> right. Now the box is, is is a screwed down to the to this big uh, wooden stand. So the box is not left there for you to take away. It's screwed down and occasionally, you know, people must steal them. But for the most part, people put money in and they take a bag of oranges. And there's, you know, three or four bags out there. So again, if you tempt people enough, you can to encourage kind of a bad behavior. So again, as a society, as families, we're always trying to find that appropriate boundary between recognizing human morality and dignity and not tempting people with vice, And so if you tempt people enough, and I think that's what happened in the mortgage market, okay. you know, it was basically money for nothing. You know, send people up, fake the numbers, mm-hmm. and give people loans out. That's not appropriate. That's not the way we want, we want to run a society, a business, um, in your personal finances.
0: So that balance tilts. Um, there's Perhaps these things are obviously, you know, these definitions are subjective to a degree. But there's more immoral behavior, more uh, a larger percentage of people doing things that they might not do in other circumstances.
2: Exactly right, and and that's the cause, essentially, a, a causative factor for recessions. And that's why we need recessions. So again, I don't. I I want to encourage listeners to think of recessions as an important part of getting back to baseline, where we want to be as a society, as an economy, as individuals, very important corrective.
0: But what, um, what has been really wounded, um, even broken, uh, through a lot of, through the collapse of the financial system and the housing market and also highly publicized, uh, you know the the Bernie the Bernard Madoff uh, phenomenon, highly publicized examples of extreme corruption and devastation that was wrought by people taking advantage of some of these systems. I mean, there is an incredible breach of trust, which is your field. So, what what does it do to us as human beings? When if, if, what does it do to our future interactions? When trust? Um, is manipulated in this way and is lost. Is violated. Is violated, yeah.
2: So we've studied this in the laboratory and we find that when people are distrusted, when, when people don't reciprocate, when someone doesn't show they trust you, um, both men and women, but men in particular, have a strong aggressive response. They release testosterone and they really want to punish that person. So we see this in the Bernie Madoff case where. Or in the AIG bonus. Uh Sure. You know, these guys are. Public anger. So we have a technical word in my lab for people who never reciprocate, and that technical word is bastards. So these kind of bastard people, if you let me use that word, is people who don't play nice, and we like to see them punished. And that's an important part of maintaining the line between appropriate and inappropriate behavior, is that we have innate mechanisms in our brain that want us to punish people that make it fun, in fact, to punish people who don't follow the appropriate social norms. Mm. So um, Madoff needs to be punished. Uh, the AIG giant bonus guys really need to be punished, um, and and that's okay. And, and we've now done that as a society, right? We don't, most of us don't go over and, you know, try to, uh, uh, you know, beat up these people. But we have a legal system that kind of does that for us, um, and that's an important way in laboratory experiments to sustain cooperation. So if you If we were having an interaction and you begin to play badly, if I have an option to punish you i can, can i can encourage you to um, be cooperative so um oxytocin and the the mechanisms in our brain that motivate moral behaviors are not perfectly tuned to the environment that we live in, so they are blunt instruments they are mm-hmm. um, uh, not modifiable very rapidly we okay. certainly learn with time so having you know, that's the good side of it. Well, it feels good when I play nice. It feels good when someone reciprocates and they thank me for uh, being a good citizen. But we also have this negative side, which is important for cooperation too, uh, which is, gee, if you don't play nice, I'm going to get pretty hot under the collar. I'm going to let you know about it. And that's going to give you feedback on what the right boundaries are. And as a society, we do that by enacting laws and regulations. We say, you know, this stuff is okay, but here's the line in which if you cross that line, even if your moral intuition is not, kicking in that says this is wrong. As a group, we're going, to sh- we're going to tell you. We're going to say this is a line in which this is inappropriate behavior. And that helps us.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how do you um, analyze the character of a person like Bernard Madoff from what you know as a from neuroscience and neuroeconomics?
2: I haven't done an exhaustive study, of him, okay. although I have read up a lot. So let me, you know, put that caveat in yeah. place. does what, um,
0: your background, your, your kind of intuition tell you?
2: Um, I think he's, um, a couple things we found in our laboratory studies, which may apply to him. One is that we find a lot of early trauma in individuals who are kind of morally ambiguous on their actions. Mm. Um, I haven't discovered if he's got an early trauma in his life, death of a, of a parent uh, um, um, you know, loss of uh, bankruptcy of a business, you know, loss of income. Um, so we often see uh, traumatic events in people uh, early in life, and they have a much more kind of flexible uh, brain system. They they have this um, more fluid sense of right and wrong than other people do. Number one. And number two, I think he was also a very insecure man, liked to be the center of attention, um, embellished his resume. And, uh, boy, it's great when people are coming to you and think you're, uh, you know, you know, way above the rest, you're extraordinary, and you're giving millions of dollars away to charities. Um, And then he said, you know, starting in the the early 90s, he just couldn't sustain those returns that he had, so we started this kind of Ponzi scheme. So um, most of us would just probably take the hit and say, hey, you know, returns are down, Uh, we're going to try to adjust our strategy. Um, Instead, he felt like he couldn't face up to that, Um, and so it's this... um, uh, sense of not being able to, to meet the expectations that others have for you and you have for yourself, which generally lies in people who are very insecure and uh, don't have a kind of good sense of self.
0: Um. So, uh, it, I mean, I'm assuming he would be one of the, that 2% who you think you could imagine in your testing who would not have this n- normal, mm, innate inclination. No, I don't
2: think so. Uh, don't? The, the 2% are... Uh, we find uh, a very strong um, developmental component, and there's, and there's many studies in animals identifying how this happens. Um, I think this is more of an acquired issue. Okay. I think he, he was under a great deal of stress, okay. and this shut the system down. The, the 2% we find, the system doesn't work from the get-go. Um, in fact, we recently discovered that people with social anxiety disorder have the same dysfunction. They are not getting the feedback that that uh, we would get in a social setting that tells us whether our, appropriate, our behavior is appropriate or not. Um, so there are some clinical conditions we're looking at now that are associated with this. Um, so there's this sort of I'm born with it two percent versus I'm under stress and I've kind of acquired this. The guys at Endron, Bertie Madoff.
0: Okay. Um, but I, you know, I want to ask you again. Um, so trust is such an important feature in uh, markets, in in morality. Um, when the, now that that is um that there's been a breach of trust, um what does that do? What does that tell you about how people are going to navigate their way through this economic crisis and beyond it?
2: There certainly is a sense of once burned twice shy, and I think the economy will not begin to start growing until we kind of get over that and I think the recipe to do that is to start small um you can trust your local merchant who you know um, perhaps much more than some you know giant corporation, so it's kind of starting small and um building up that trust and um, we've done studies and other people have on the mechanism of that, and basically it's this getting comfortable with taking risk again okay. and risk taking is really important risk taking is where um advances where innovations come from, um, but we have to be kind of willing to do it. And again, once you've been burned and you feel like gee i'm I've seen my retirement portfolio go down by thirty percent, the last thing I'm going to do is is put my foot back in the water. But I think you know that the the financial advice would be sort of stay the course um you know don't make radical changes, uh stick with what you're doing, and again develop that confidence in the markets, the confidence in people around you and um the economy is kind of like a giant navy ship uh or a or cruise liner. Um, it, it has a self writing mechanism. And if you don't, you really need a gigantic way for this thing to get knocked over. So, um, you know, there are signs already that, uh, you know, the, the economic health is starting to bounce back. And um, uh, that's a good thing. And, and as we get more confidence, uh, we'll see this acceleration. Uh, there'll be fits and starts. And, uh, and I predict in 10 years we'll see another euphoric state and uh, the next crisis will hit. And we'll kind of patch that hole in the ship we'll say, gee, I shouldn't have turned so sharp there. That wasn't a good idea. Let me patch the hole, and I'll start, start going on a straight course again.
0: You know, you um, said a moment ago that, that you think a moment like this is a moment to reflect and to be uh, refreshed in a way and to ask some important—to be renewed and to ask some important moral questions. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from many different directions, but I wonder if— I mean, you also have the cold eye of a scientist, and I wonder if your science—if your science would suggest that uh, when the economy is moving again, let's assume that um, that things get onto um, a more stable and prosperous ground again, um, do those kinds of questions recede, or could you imagine a long-term effect of the kind of reflection that's going on now?
2: Boy, that's a great question. From a scientific basis, we don't have studies that would inform that question. Um, from the way the brain is organized, um, I would think that we're going to have... So the the brain sort of habituates to environments, and we've habituated now to kind of a fearful, pessimistic environment. And um, when we are in a euphoric setting and uh, we're getting double-digit returns every year in the stock market or some other market... Um, I think we also acclimate pretty quickly to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't think, I think history will repeat itself. Uh, I I just think, uh, (laughs) you know, we're not going to learn from this unless, you know, we can sit back, unless we take this opportunity to sit back and reflect and make fundamental changes. So for the people who do that, for the people who are looking at this saying, gee, I was selling mortgages to people who had no income at all. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not the business I want to be in. Um, maybe I should use my skills for something else. Uh, and or, um, uh, you know, I don't need the bigger car than my neighbor. Um, what I really need to do is spend more time with my family or uh, volunteer at a charity uh, once a week. Um, I think those those are kind of fundamental changes that now is the time to do. And if you can set up those uh, habits, mm-hmm. then you will see permanent change. But I think um, hopefully for people listening to the program, This is the time to do it. And if you wait three years from now when, you know, the the party is back on, the the financial party is back on, um, you know, there'll be less incentive to change. So pain is a great time for growth.
0: Okay. I want to ask you a question that uh, we've been asking online and on air to a number of different kinds of thinkers, Um, uh, religious thinkers, but also scientists, um, poets, uh, social activists, and some business people as well. Um, are you um, thinking of this, of our economic pre- present, as a as a moral or spiritual crisis as well as um, an economic crisis?
2: I, I think in my own life, I'm trying to take advantage of this, and certainly in my children's lives, to take advantage of this time of pain to um, educate them, mm-hmm. to encourage them to reach out more. Uh, to engage in more um, uh, helping behaviors and charitable work Um, from a sort of overall aggregate perspective um, I'm not sure Um, I I don't know if it is a time of retrenchment Um, uh, economically it is but spiritually I don't think I'm qualified to say Mm -hmm. so um, I think individuals need to make that choice themselves and um, my sense is we want to embrace the pain and use this as a an experience, if possible, that lets us get more clarity. Um, but for an overall, is is an overall spiritual crisis in the country? Um, I just don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, let me ask you. This is another question we've been asking. And, and virtue, I think, is a word that um, is important to you. You've talked about virtue as part of economic life. Um, and I'm also, I've also, we've been asking people what resources and what virtues. Um, they are drawing on, uh, living in the economic present and moving uh, beyond it. I I loved it. There's some place where you talk about Aristotle taking magnificence, that magnificence is one of the virtues that he cited in life. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how you think about that, uh, for yourself. I
2: think magnificence is my favorite virtue of Aristotle's. would mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> it be great to say you were magnificent today? Mm-hmm. Um, I try to do that with the people around me. I try to recognize magnificence um, when it occurs and, and let them know how special they are. Um, but I think this is also a time in my own life um, to focus on things like generosity and compassion and understanding and um, to use this as a, a bit of a teaching moment. Uh, not only for myself, but certainly for my children and those around me, to think about how we can do better, how we can help more, and the value of doing that. Um, and, and, again, when, when everyone is employed and, uh, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, people losing their houses and uh, right. <laughs> such and such. So, for example, we adopted a dog recently that was going to be put down uh, by a, a family who had lost their home and they had to move. And uh, they had a number of pets and um, um, not a healthy young dog, but an old, uh, not so <laughs> great dog, and um, and we said as a family and said, you know, w- we like this dog, and we don't want him to be, um, we don't want the family to have the the pain of having to put this dog down, and um, and let's let's take it in, and let's try to help them and let them come and see their dog uh, when they can, and so I think you know all those little lessons don't always occur when you're buying the bigger house and the bigger car and you don't have to think about it, so. Um, I think, you know, we have tried, um, my family and I have tried explicitly to think about how we can reach out more to help others around us.
0: You know, and I want to ask you if, um, in addition to what has, is happening in the economy right now, um, is what you are learning about economics and morality through uh, neuroscience and neuroeconomics, is 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 your research challenging or or, uh, or Or supporting um, or possibly changing some of the assumptions about market economies that we've held um, in this culture in recent years
2: I think we're of two minds on on market economies. I think um, most of us have our retirement money in stocks and bonds, and so we understand that as the economy grows, the stock market uh, goes up in value and we're happy about that, um on the other hand, there is this underlying sense um that interacting in markets somehow uh, degrades our dignity is not something we should be doing uh that it's it's um it's it's not our best purpose as human beings, and that thought uh, which is associated with Marx, for example, predates that it goes back to Aristotle and perhaps before mm-hmm. uh, it's in Confucianism. Um, so I think we are starting, starting to take some shots from that by using this interdisciplinary approach in which we're identifying uh, the legal uh, aspects of an innate sense of morality. We're identifying the economic aspects. We're identifying the religious aspects. aspects. So by having this kind of convergent evidence, I think we are taking a shot on um, economics as, as bad, sort of a necessary evil um, I think what we're saying is that this is a human endeavor, and humans throughout history have traded with each other, and they trade because it can make both parties better off. And to the extent that um, I sell you something that you need and helps you, um, that, in fact, is a moral act. Even if I'm getting paid for it, it's still a moral act because I have thought about how to make you better off, how to increase your welfare, your happiness. And I think that is a different take. That's a that's not a unique Uh, view of the economy, by the way, but it's a view that we haven't heard much about. And so I think if we think about um, being magnificent as customer service agents, being magnificent as um, managers, if we think about doing the very best in uh, terms of teamwork to serve those around us, serve the people we work with, serve our employees, then we have a very different view of um, what the economic endeavor is and why it creates prosperity, because it's a win-win situation. So if it's uncoerced exchange, then people must want to both exchange this money for the good or service, and they must get some benefit from it. So I think that's the way to think about um, what our research is telling us, and it's all dependent upon this kind of moral sense, this sense of social obligation. (laughs)
0: But that's the tough part. I mean, tell me, this is there—so you're learning about um, this innate moral inclination— um, is there something in your research that also suggests how that can be strengthened? Um, are you thinking of, uh, spraying oxytocin over large, uh, urban areas? I mean... What- <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Put it in the water supply. So I think it's, it's getting back to this one-on-one relationship, right? If I see my customer, if I see the per- people I work with, if I have that personal interaction, I'm getting from a from a scientific perspective, from a neuroscientific perspective, I'm getting much more feedback on what I'm doing. What it, what I'm doing is how it affects people. Does it help people? Is it appropriate? When I'm doing all this electronically, um, again, a la Enron, just to to pick our favorite uh, uh, nasty company, mm-hmm. then everything is it's easy to kind of uh, ignore the pain you may be causing by behaving inappropriately. So, I think it's that one-on-one. It's it's the going to the farmer's market. It's understanding that, um, uh, you know, millions and millions of people own Walmart stock. And um, and if Walmart is going to survive, they're going to try to provide the best customer service and products they can. And that's a good thing. That's something that people want. Um, and if you want a different level of product and customer service, then you go to a different kind of store. So um, there's this fine line between um, economies depending on uh, other regarding behaviors, what we might call virtuous behaviors, and competition. And the competition can sometimes drive us to behave in non-moral ways, immoral ways. And that's, I think, where we can get out of whack. So I think getting back to the basics. I, I love the, uh, the the CEOs, you know, who will go on the line, you know, wherever the line is, you know, go to the McDonald's store and serve hamburgers for a day. And that's very important. Um, also something many businesses do, my lab does, is um, allow people time and encourage people to volunteer uh, to help others, to to realize that we are very lucky to have the jobs we have, to have good incomes, to be able to choose what we do in life, and there are people who don't have those choices. And to, uh, to make a place for that as a personal growth experience, and in b- many businesses, this kind of developing uh, people's spiritual side um, has big benefits in terms of greater morale, greater productivity in the workplace fewer sick days. So I think it's recognizing the whole human being and businesses as societies in miniature. And if you want to get the most benefit out of going to work and the things you do at work, you have to recognize that people need to be um, valued. They need to feel like they're reaching out, doing something important. And we can do that. And again, I think the recession, not to harp on the same question, but the recession is a great time to get back to those core issues as human beings, as organizations.
0: How you think um about the spiritual or religious implications of the work you do of this of what you're learning um, by way of science and economics, whether it's this this subject we've been talking about or other work you're doing maybe that we haven't discussed
2: well, I think it's utterly fascinating that you know we do have as we're finding this innate moral sense um where that comes from and certainly there's there's an evolutionary history that can be traced um, through other animals and where these brain mechanisms come from um, that this process is extraordinarily accelerated in human beings but I think it tells us why um, you know 99% of humans with their history of life have believed in a god or gods uh, why we seek spiritual enlightenment most of us why we seek elevated states um, why we have awe um, I think this is part of our makeup as um, human beings. And the place for that uh, spiritual sense in a larger religious setting, um, I think is unclear. I, I think mm. it's, you, you could view this in one way as um, uh, if you're a believer in God, that God imbued this into our brains and we have therefore um, a spiritual, religious um, kind of sense, uh, a circuit in our brains Um, Or you could say that um, equally, I think it's possibly, uh, that this sense evolved because we are hyposocial creatures and we have a need to believe in others and things around us to actually move forward. Um, So I'm unable to say that from a scientific perspective, which is more correct, but certainly consistent with um, a very strong belief in spirituality, in in belief in God, and um, although not necessary on that. So I think Um, What we're finding is there are, uh, for example, we have surveyed people extensively in our experiments um, on their their spiritual beliefs, their religious beliefs, and the extent of their religious beliefs. And we don't find that this moral molecule, oxytocin, um, that it depends on your religious beliefs, whether you're raised uh, religiously, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're a current religious believer or uh, practice religion, how often you go. Um, So it seems to work. kind of on its own, again, in that 98% of the people in, this, in which the system is intact. And so it no- doesn't
0: um, also necessarily support that moral inclination?
2: It, it does support that moral inclination, but I think that the religion can be thought of as reinforcing that, as okay. giving us exemplars. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know the great religious figures in, in history are moral exemplars. Um, they may be much more important than that, but at a minimum, they kind of tell us about um, how to live life most fully. Um, I, I, we've done a, a, some work recently on the role of touch. Um, and uh, as, as you may know, the Dalai Lama uh, is, is a, one of the happiest people, I think, on the okay. planet. Mm-hmm. And he touches people all the time. And we found recently that uh, touch actually releases oxytocin and connects us to other people. Hmm. Uh, not the people who touched us. We actually had, uh, in, from experimental setting, had massage therapists Uh, touch our experimental subjects, give them a a short back massage. And this primed the brain to to release oxytocin and generated much more cooperative behaviors uh, subsequently. So I think human beings have developed a variety of ways to uh, kind of juice the system to keep us connected to other people. Um, Touch, handshakes, hugs, uh, sharing meals, uh, eating will release oxytocin. Mm. And we have so many meetings over meals and so many celebrations over meals. That's a wonderful bonding opportunity. And I think we found that out just through um, trial and error, that this is a great way to bond to people. So I think all those institutions and rituals that we have, including uh, religious services, which I think are very important ways to reify the kinds of beliefs and the kinds of uh, desires that we have for the way we want to live our lives, are very important ways to uh, make us happy, healthy, connected, and, uh, and, and perhaps get us closer to God.
0: You know we had a um we did a program a few years ago which we've um aired again in which peop which there's a great deal of interest in it's with um someone named prabhu Guptara who's with u b s in switzerland um and he did a study of across the world's cultures of um the very the major traditions religious traditions, and he also included um atheism as a as a major uh um, you wouldn't call it a tradition, but a, 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 a view of the world and of life. And he was looking at how different spiritual and religious traditions or standpoints um, equip their followers to behave ethically in the workplace, to take some of the values and virtues from that with them to work or not. And he found that there's there's often not a correlation. Uh, he found that some of the most religious people who were getting direct training in morality um, – Really had a culture of checking that at the door and seeing the culture of the workplace as neutral. Certainly, um, Western Christians, um, and he found that some people who were not at all religious um, were very ethical in the workplace. So that there there wasn't necessarily a connection. And I just wonder how you think about that phenomenon from the standpoint of the work you do, and whether you see a challenge for religious education coming out of your scientific research.
2: I think there's a real place for religious education, or at least moral, spiritual education. Um, I, I think there's a continuum there. I, I don't think the work we're doing is, is um, identifies a particular religious discipline as being more or less correct or more or less consistent with the way that we, the brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that um, highly hierarchical religions, uh, the kind of you must uh, religions, um, are less consistent with the way our studies show the brain works, um, but they may be more appropriate in different social settings, for example, mm-hmm. in much more stratified social settings. Um, if I'm thinking of Islam here in particular, where you have much greater discrepancies among individuals, um, where in um, uh, countries and societies where you have much more uh, social and economic equality um, you see horizontal religions, for example, Protestantism uh, tends to flourish much more strongly. So there's a chicken and egg problem there. Um, but I think there is a sense for having these more exemplars, for having the Jesuses and the Buddhas and the Dalai Lamas to um, help remind us on what it takes to be uh, fulfilled. So um, Aristotle thought that the way to happiness was by practicing virtue. And so if we have examples of people who are virtuous, then I think it helps us uh, to take those steps ourselves. Can it happen in the workplace? I think it should. I think it it probably needs to. And I think to the extent that the workplace gets away from virtuous behaviors, it's all about the money, uh, is inconsistent with um, my view and many others' views of uh, workplaces as these little societies where we seek fulfillment, we seek... Mm. Um, to develop our human skills and even our spiritual skills, our spiritual side.
0: So um do you think you live differently um because of this what you know um through your work
2: what a wonderfully unfair question that is <laughs> um, I do. You know I've I've started to realize um, that um, I have more control over my own happiness and the happiness of those around me than I thought I did. And, um, things like volunteering, um, and, and and I think, you know, charity work I may have made a real commitment to do those kinds of things. Um, now, because I see that it is, uh, you know, good for my heart, good for my soul, um, good for those around me. Um, it's easy to say, oh, this is good for other people, but not to do it yourself. And I found uh, really great joy in, um, engaging in uh, a lot of volunteer events and encouraging those around me to do it. And it, it's not appropriate or fair for me to say, hey, you guys who work for me ought to go uh, volunteer and build houses for the homeless, right. but I'm much yeah. too busy. Um, in fact, um, we're none of us are too busy to do uh, to take care of those around us. And I think in a very real sense, our research shows us that we are our brother's keepers, right? We and sister's keepers. We... Uh, can't help but be concerned for those around us. So I'll give you a quick example of that on how this system works. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't happen so much anymore, but it used to be when, when I was younger that we'd have these kids who fell down some abandoned well somewhere in Texas, and it would be a big media event, and um, and, and and presumably, you know, uh, you know, millions of dollars would be spent to, uh, you know, get this kid out of the well. And you think, well, let's say, suppose I spent a million dollars to save this child, Um, Instead of doing that, let me spend a million dollars and vaccinate um, every child in West Virginia, Louisiana, and Mississippi um, against, uh, you know, the standard childhood uh, diseases. Um, I probably could save a lot more lives by having an extensive vaccination program. And I'll just take that kid and I'll just cap the well and he'll stop crying after a while and we'll forget about him. Well, come on. No one can do that. We just Mm -hmm. can't do that. We're not able to do that because we're empathic creatures, because we feel that cry. We can't ignore it. And that's the system that we're characterizing in our brains. And as long as that system's intact, um, for the most part, I think it keeps us on this fairly virtuous path. Um, Most of the time, for most people, again, if I stress you enough, I can get you off that path. Um, But uh, for most of us, we just can't help it. It's It's an evolutionarily old response. It's an unconscious response. And we are very much connected to those around us. And the connection is stronger when it's one-to-one and in person.
1: Okay.
2: So that suggests to me, get involved. Uh, Find that person who needs your help. um, Reach out to him or her. And the rewards you'll get is very strong. So the way this system works in your brain is um, oxytocin modulates uh, other chemicals in the brain that make behaviors rewarding. So think of this as sort of care for offspring, which is really the hallmark of mammals. So why do we care for children? Because it feels good. They give us feedback. They smile. uh, They hug us. Um, So this system is is self-reinforcing because, uh, you know, it must be important for mammals to care for their offspring to, uh, you know, help them develop. So the same thing we found happens for reaching out and being generous towards strangers is that it's rewarding. People feel good, um, at least for some period of time, uh, that makes them want to do uh, more of these behaviors. So in our experiments, people who are empathically engaged not only gave more money to a stranger in the laboratory, they also gave more money to charities when given a chance. And I should say that also in these experiments, they're not the most pleasant experiments. So these individuals are getting paid and we're jabbing their arm with needles, or we're putting drugs into them uh, to turn on and off parts of the brain. So they're really getting paid, you know, 40 or $50 uh, to endure some pain and sit in the lab for a couple hours. And yet they still voluntarily choose to give up that money to help a stranger, to help a charity, uh, once we've engaged these um, these mm. brain systems mm. regarding empathy. That's pretty amazing to me. And these are, you know, hungry college students.
0: Hmm. You know, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues here before we came into the interview, and talking to him about your findings that stress is what dampens this trust and this sort of empathy instinct. And he remarked that, uh, you know, that made that made sense in terms of the fact that um, he's much more likely to give someone a dollar for coffee who stops him on the street than someone who's on a corner and he drives by him in his car where he's on his way someplace, you know, stressed <laughs> and can think... Um, I simply don't have time. But there's also not that, there's not that, such a direct human connection.
2: It is very important. There's a famous study of uh, men who are in seminary and they were rushing off to, uh, uh, I think, a a religious service. And uh, the experimenters had placed a a homeless man uh, in their pathway who was asking for help. And it turns out about half of them actually ignored the uh the pleas for help because they were late for this, you know, service and of course they're trying to. So that that's just that shows the stress response, right? So mm-hmm. if again if we're leisurely walking down the path and again, these individuals have self selected to to uh you know, help other people, they're in seminary, presumably they would stop and try to help. But a little bit of stress does it. So um I think, you know, what this means is I, the theme we're coming back to is this mechanism is the strongest in person. It's strongest when I volunteer at my local homeless shelter. It's not just giving money. It's actually going mm-hmm. and doing it. But the the value of that is the internal rewards that we get. And I think um, because our brain is adaptable, if we adapt ourselves, if we practice um, helping others, it becomes much more natural, mm. becomes fulfilling, and we're much more connected to people. And uh, studies of happiness have shown that the number one thing that makes us happy is our social network, our connections to other people. As we learn to connect um, I think we become better people and we become happier people. And that's something I've started to do in my own life. You asked me this a couple of minutes ago,
1: mm-hmm.
2: is connect more to other people, um, tell people around them that I love them, um, hug people. Everyone in my lab, I hug now. And, you know, really be close to people around me and, and recognize how special they are. That doesn't mean when someone makes a mistake or, or fails to do something properly that they don't get feedback. but um, I think it's so important to uh, treat people with the kind of love and respect that we would want to get. I guess it's just the golden rule. This is not, mm. you know, anything really deep or important, um, except we have brain mechanisms that kick in. <laughs> to see and- the
0: golden rule happening in the brain.
2: Right? Yeah, that's what we found. This is basically <laughs> right. is a golden rule. So, you know, we are reciprocal creatures. That That's what the moral molecule does. And if you treat me well, I'll treat you well back. If you treat me badly, I'll treat you badly back. So um i think there is a lesson there there's a lesson mm-hmm. for the way we organize organize um societies the way we organize businesses um but you know uh, what goes around comes around and you know there's a reason that saying has persisted uh it's because it pretty much describes society so um again i think that's the, the one of the primary goals of um taking time to meditate uh going to church having these kind of models in which we can see oh here's a person Uh, Jesus, you know, washing the feet of the wanderers. I mean, here's something that you don't have to do, but when you do it, it is so rewarding because you have put yourself in a situation in which you can be a service to others, and that is a guide for everyone else around you.
0: Are they teaching neuroeconomics in business schools these days?
2: They ought to. You know, I get more calls from lawyers and judges groups to speak to them than anybody else because Mm -hmm. I think they're, you know, we have designed our legal system Around uh, um, the sort of standard uh, so called rational choice economics model. If I want to have people engage in some uh, activity that I don't like as a society, I just increase the penalty. Turns out it doesn't work for lots of different criminal behaviors. Mm. Um, So I think understanding our innate social and moral sense draws on a whole different way to structure legal systems. Um, uh, I recently taught a class at uh, the Drucker School of Management at Claremont uh, to MBA students called. um, moral values in the brain uh, and basically it was a class on business ethics but it, would, it masqueraded as a class on the brain and the moral brain and you know the basically the bottom line from that was what I just told you which is if you're a smart manager you ought to use these brain systems you're going to get better productivity but you have to live you know you have to walk the walk you've got to live this yourself mm-hmm. you yourself have to be a moral person because if you're not the whole system breaks down because people are going to follow what you do so here's the reason why you should do this, why you should encourage people to volunteer, why you should do every dirty job from mopping the floors. Go mop the floors one day if you're a CEO. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love that? Mm-hmm. Say, well, that's a bad use of my time. I'm a smart, you know, super sharp CEO. What could be more important than to say, I want to see what's happening on the floors today, in the bathroom. I want to see what it looks like. Are we doing our job right? And if we are, let's recognize the janitorial staff. And if we're not... See, this is like uh, starting from the ground up. So, um, I think that's the kind of message that um, MBAs really need to hear. It's not just about maximizing shareholder value; it's really about maximizing productivity, happiness, and I might even say virtue within the workplace. And if you do that, we get out of the mess we're in. We get back to core values. And, um, and again, this is not new. One of my my late colleague Peter Drucker mm-hmm. uh, wrote extensive about this in his long career about you know, organizing businesses so that. They recognize human dignity, and they draw on all the human resources that we have um, from our education, our IQ, our brain power, our uh, innate sense, our reciprocity, and even our spiritual sense. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, that's a great last word. Thank you.
2: Um, Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah,
0: it was great. And um, we will let you know what's happening with this, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm
2: it was great. Very thank impressed you with your work. Yeah, thank you. Oh, so nice of you to say that. Thank you so yeah. much. And So you're going to chop this up and make it sound good? Yeah, take it.
0: yeah. No, you, you, <laughs> we make everyone sound <laughs> I better.
2: Like, I, I might have Including rambled me. a little bit here and there. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Your See, digital so editing
0: win? is terrific. <laughs>
2: <laughs> great to talk to you.
1: Okay, you too. Thank you.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.